May God bless his, the reading of his word this morning. I'm reading Luke, the 19th chapter, starting at verse 37. And I'm reading out of the NIV. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He replied, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Thank you, Judy. You may be new to us, and I wanted to take a moment or so and uh, talk about Yom HaShoah. Um, and by the way, next Shabbat, we will be celebrating Yom HaTzma'ut, Israeli Independence Day. And if you're someone who comes, uh, who are coming, looking for us to celebrate the biblical feast, we do, and some. Um, why observe Yom HaShoah? We first of all want to stand and say that despite everything that had taken place, we have no doubt that God's plans for Israel would be fulfilled. We see Yeshua Tzion as a giant billboard, one of a number of billboards that says to the community, God is not done with the nation of Israel. Despite voices to the contrary, we desire to see God's spiritual restoration for the nation. And a major part of that is the healing for the deep wounds that have taken place because of the Holocaust. And by the way, uh, let me just be somewhat um, perhaps... Uh, confrontational in making the statement that for many people in the Jewish community, the Holocaust is considered the worst example of anti-Semitism that has been brought about through the institutional church. And you may not make that connection. Uh, however, as far as people in the traditional Jewish community not us at Yeshua Tzion, but in the traditional Jewish community, uh, Hitler and the Nazis were considered Christians. And by the way, uh, Hitler has been quoted, he is on record stating that what he did was part of his understanding of serving Christ. And so you can understand why for the Jewish community, the Shoah, the, the Holocaust, it, it is so painful 
because it is part of our history, 2,000 year history. And if you don't understand the pain of the Shoah, the Holocaust, then you really cannot adequately understand Jewish people. And you cannot share Yeshua with a Jewish community that is now predisposed to an attitude that says ABY or ABJ, anything but Yeshua, anything but Jesus. Major reason for that is the pain of the Holocaust and the persecution that have, has taken place. And the truth is, this is something we really can't get our arms around. We try. And people write books and come up with theories. But at the end of the day, you have to step back and say, you know, the only one who really understands all of it is God. So I want to pause for just a minute and invite him to be the one who speaks to us this morning as we look into the word. We thank you, Lord, and praise you that you understand us. You created us. You fashioned us in our mother's womb. Lord, you understand humanity and the fact that we were created in your image but also, Lord, how that, that image has been defiled by sin and how that it often is used by the powers of darkness in the perpetrating of the work of evil. And Lord God, today we pray for the discernment, the ability both to understand that, not to dismiss it, And recognize it for what it is and grieve, Lord, where we need to grieve. And at the same time, Lord God, to step back and be encouraged by you, by your sovereignty, your control, and your good plans. We pray for all of that to take place, Lord. In the name of Yeshua, amen. What took place is something that boggles the mind. You know, you hear about human cruelty, and Lord knows, it. you read the papers, and uh, it's a good exercise in, in depression. You know, you don't want to be depressed, don't read the news. Um, otherwise, you hear about murders in, in Syria, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and all sorts of places. Um, I, as a child in Israel, was taken to the... Um, Holocaust Museum, the Shoah Museum in Jerusalem, where we were shown lampshades made from human skins and bars of soap made from human fat. So obviously for me, it's something that is very personal. My father is a Holocaust survivor. You know, he is now with Yeshua. He has no pain. But part of the reason why we emphasize it every year is that we are facing, as a community, as a Messianic Jewish community, we face not only an increase in anti-Semitism, which impacts us 
as well as the traditional Jewish community, but also there's a fair amount of Holocaust denial. If you Google um, anything having to do with the Holocaust, you'll find a good number of folks who are convinced that what took place was e really non-existent. In other words, uh, there really was no such thing as the Holocaust or else it was something very minimal. And of course, uh, President Ahmadinejad um, jumped on that uh, when he hosted the Holocaust denial conference in Tehran uh, a couple of years ago. But those who liberated the camps in 1945 were very much aware of that. Um, let me just quote to you a story about um, General Eisenhower. In 1945, elements of the United States 89th Infantry Division and the 4th Armored Division captured the Ordorf concentration camp outside the town of Gotha in south-central Germany. And people at that time, the Americans didn't realize that it fed in to the Buchenwald extermination camp. There were a number of sub-camps that, in a sense, fed into Buchenwald. And... Um, there were 11,000 prisoners on the way to the gas chambers. And a few days before the Americans arrived, the SS guards assembled all of the inmates and they marched them off to Buchenwald. The folks that they left were either dead or dying, dead because of bullet wounds, starvation, abuse, disease, and so on. And it was so horrific that even the soldiers who had been fighting for five years um, were battle, uh, combat hardened, were not only shocked, they were repulsed. There was evidence uh, everywhere in, in this camp order of, of systematic butchery. And I can go on and on and on to tell you more about it, but I'll stop. When General Eisenhower learned about the camp, he immediately arranged to have uh, General Bradley and General Patton to meet him there. And uh, then from there, they also took a tour of Buchenwald. And he ordered, Eisenhower ordered every American soldier in the area to visit these camps because he wanted them to see what was going on. And he was quoted making the following statement, get it all on record now, get the films, get the witnesses, because somewhere down the track of history, some blankety blank will get up and say that this never happened. Eisenhower wrote to Mamie, his wife, he said, I never dreamed that such cruelty, bestiality, and savagery could really exist in the world. And as I mentioned earlier, um, a representative from the 157th Infantry Regiment that liberated one of the camps uh, will be one of the speakers tomorrow. How do you wrap your arms around that?
you can try to come up with some kind of explanation, and people have. Um, people explained it as an outpouring of demonic fury, which it was. People explained it by looking at economic and social factors, which played into some of that. Um, some folks, by the way, both on the Jewish and on the Christian spectrum, looked at the Holocaust, at the Shoah, as a sign of God's judgment on the nation of Israel for one reason or another. The Christian and people would say because the Jewish people rejected Jesus and were Christ killers. On the Jewish end, folks would say God judged Israel because the nation did not observe the Shabbat. And the truth is, folks, the only one who truly understands the pain is Yeshua. On the cross, he experienced the worst possible pain, separation from the Father. This is something that the prophet Isaiah predicted when he spoke about the Messiah. He said he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and familiar with suffering. Literally, a man of illness. Excuse me, a man of pain and someone who is familiar with sickness. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Yeshua understood and understands the pain of the Shoah, the Holocaust. And interestingly enough, over the last several decades, Jewish intellectuals and artists, writers, have been describing Yeshua as the epitome of Jewish suffering. Of course, he's a lot more than that, but it's profound, it's a profound realization that Yeshua both is Jewish and someone who understands Jewish suffering, including the Holocaust. Unfortunately, there are a number of passages in Scripture, particularly Yeshua's statements, that are used or misused to try and, and put on the wrong explanation for what took place in the Holocaust. And this passage, along with other passages, um, are used as a suggestion to imply that the Holocaust, the Shoah, was brought about because of Israel's rejection of Yeshua. So I want to spend a bunch of time talking about a couple of things. First of all, the fact that God does judge. And that when we speak about compassion and mercy and suffering with those who suffer, that yes, we do that, and yet at the same time, we, we don't shirk our responsibility to, to talk about the fact that God judges sin. He judges sin everywhere, worldwide, in each one of us, 
and also in the nation of Israel. So I want to look at both of those. First of all, God's judgment, what God's judgment looks like and what it doesn't. And then talk about how Yeshua responded to the impending judgment that was about to take place 40 years after his death and resurrection. You know, Yeshua is often described as a rabbi because he was a teacher, he was an itinerant uh, preacher, he understood the Torah, he gave the proper explanation for what the Torah was all about, where people were uh, consumed with minutia, Yeshua told people that they needed to step back and see the forest for all the trees. Yes, he was a rabbi. But what folks often miss is the fact that Yeshua was first of all a prophet. And I wanted to explain or just review briefly what prophets were all about. Part of what happens today is there's a great deal of confusion about what prophets are and aren't. And so sometimes people tend to ignore the valid place of prophecy and the valid place of prophets in God's plan. Prophets in Scripture called people to repent. They called it for what it is. They, they held up a mirror and reflected the sin of the people. You have been chasing false gods instead of loving the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and, and strength. You've been going after Baal, Baal, and Ashtoreth because you felt that you weren't getting from me what you wanted. Again, very human inclination. We all tend towards idolatry. So before you know, we point fingers at Israel, we need to remember that we are prone in that same direction. The prophets held up a mirror to Israel and said, here's where you are. You think you're sitting pretty. Let me explain to you, you really aren't. You have drifted from God. You, you, have, um, you have lived in sin. Secondly, the prophets warned of impending judgment. God loves you, but he has to fulfill his promise to you that if you don't behave, he will have to judge you and punish you. And of course, you don't find that in the Bible promise books. All the promises that God says, if you foul up, I will have to punish you because I'm your parent. I can't let you run wild, and if you're a parent, you understand what that's all about. The prophets predicted impending judgment. For example, when you read in Daniel chapter 9, as he's praying before God, he's saying, Lord, you had no choice but to judge us and throw us into exile because that's what you said in the Torah, that if we would run away from you, you would have to discipline us. So prophets warned of impending judgment. And folks, it was never expressed as in ha, ha, ha. You're going to get what you deserve. Prophecy, folks, when prophets in Scripture predicted God's impending judgment, it always, always, always reflected God's aching heart 
Look at passages such as Ezekiel chapter 18, where the prophet says, turn, turn, repent. In other words, you're heading this way. You're about to run off a cliff. Turn away and come towards me. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You find, for example, in Isaiah chapter 5, in other places, that often when judgment are expressed, they're expressed as lament. Every time you see the word woe in English, it, it is a translation of a Hebrew word of lament, hoy. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 5, you find the word woe six times. Woe, woe, woe. And it's not just there by accident. It expresses God's aching heart. And by the way, when you make the connection into the New Testament, into Matthew chapter 23, and you see Yeshua saying seven times, woe, that's exactly the same sentiment. It is lament. Isaac, can I have... Just a bit more. The prophets called Israel to repent. They warned of Im impending judgment. They expressed God's pain in having to mete out the judgment. And by the way, as you, as you look at Yeshua's ministry, you see the same kind of characteristics displayed in how he talks. He doesn't talk like a rabbi in a sense that... He argues finer points of the Torah based on what his rabbi and the rabbi before him says. But Yeshua proclaims the word of God. This is directly the word of God from the Father. As you find in the Tanakh, in the, New T in the Old Testament. Neum Adonai, thus says God. He speaks with authority. He calls the people to repent. All the way from the beginning of his ministry. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when it became clear that the people were not willing to receive his message, were rejecting him, and particularly the spiritual leaders who should have known better, Yeshua proclaimed God's judgment. And folks who don't understand that, look at that. Uh, Jewish uh, critics look at that and say, this is an expression of the fact that the New Testament teaches anti-Semitism. It doesn't. It is a continuation and long line of prophetic tradition going all the way back to the earliest prophets. And God's most severe judgment was res reserved for the religious leader who should have known something, who should have known better. God's judgment, folks, is never capricious. You know, if, if you're familiar with Greek mythology, uh, you've read about Zeus. Zeus would wake up one day with a bad headache and, and he would let people have it. You know, I, I was flipping through um, the idiot box. I still refer to it as idiot box. I, I'm dating myself here. And came across a, um, a show about Hercules. I didn't stay with it very long, trust me. But part of what was odd about it is that Hercules is trying to live his life and do the great deeds. And, and he is dealing with the fact that Zeus and, and Papa God and Hera 
one of the mother gods are having this major discussion and disagreement and very capricious. God, our God, is not capricious, folks. And when he finally has to give judgment, meet out judgment, it is based on people's refusal to repent. It is specific. And it's also based on the fact that God sent messages in one form or another saying, change, repent. The prophets earlier called the people to repent. The people refused. They paid no attention. You see that, for example, with, with Manasseh, who led the people astray. He eventually got it. But again, God's judgment is particularly severe on those who are in spiritual leadership. You see that in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament. You see that also in Yeshua's statements. He was very gentle and very compassionate towards the sinners that the community back then would see, look at those big sinners, sinners with a capital S, you know, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and so on and so forth. Yeshua pointed his finger the other direction. The big sinners were the folks who were the so-called religious leaders and who were hypocritical. Here are some of the statements Yeshua makes and you experts in the Torah, woe to you. Again, hoy, lament, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourself will not lift one finger to help them. This is Luke eleven forty six. Then Matthew 23, woe to you teachers of the Torah and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom, in heaven's, uh, kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourself do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to woe to you this is uh, 2313 woe to you teachers of the Torah and Pharisees you hypocrites you travel over land and sea to win a single convert and when he becomes one you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are this is part of God's Anger, holy anger at those who lead folks astray. Judgment came upon the, the spiritual leaders. It also came on those, the rank and file, who rejected the message that God consistently sent to them. Oh, Jerusalem, this is Luke 13. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stone those sent to you. And, and here is a, a somewhat of a sidebar in a sense. Learn to be receptive to the voice of God. The easy way. Because the Lord will speak to you in a number of different ways and try to get your attention and his preference is to speak softly, to speak tenderly, to speak to you heart to heart and mirror what's going on in your life. He takes no pleasure out of having to use the two by four, folks. 
It's not his option A. Somewhere down there, option Z. God's judgment came on, on the spiritual leaders and on those who rejected the message. What did the judgment look like? Well, we often think about the physical aspects of the judgment, and we'll talk about that in, in, in a moment or so. Forgetting that the biggest, biggest aspect of God's judgment is the fact that he withdraws his presence. Everything begins when God withdraws his presence from people. Because when he does that, then his blessing doesn't flow. His protection doesn't come. And the Lord predicted that all the way back to Deuteronomy. All the way back to the Torah, he said, I will certainly hide my face on that day because of their wickedness in turning to other gods. Ezekiel saw that in a vision. He saw it very graphically. You know, if you read Ezekiel, it's sort of a bit like science fiction. You know, you see all these pictures, all these images. Um, but in chapter 10, he says, Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. In other words, it came from the Holy of Holies into the holy place into the courtyard, into the threshold of the temple. This is Ezekiel 10.4. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold. The glory of the Lord in this vision even left the temple itself. Then in chapter, 13, chapter 11, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it, which is the Mount of Olives. In other words, the glory of God, the presence of God, left the temple and left Jerusalem. And basically, at that point, God's judgment was about to fall. His house, the temple, could be destroyed. This is the first temple. Then the second temple. Yeshua is predicting the same thing. Luke 13, 35. Look, your house is left to you desolate. In Matthew 23, same message, different word in Greek. Luke, look, your house is left to you desolate in a sense of being abandoned and neglected. I'm gone. I've left. The presence of God is about to depart. And you may or may not know this, that the rabbis grappled with this whole issue. In fact, in the Talmud, they stated that 40 years before the destruction of the temple in the year 70, which would make it about 30 CE, roughly the time of Yeshua's death and resurrection, 40 years before the destruction of the temple, God no longer accepted Israel's atonement on the Day of Atonement rituals. And th like good rabbis, they try to figure out why. And the reason, the consensus was that God's favor and God's presence left because they had baseless hatred, hatred without cause exactly 
what Yeshua had to say about his rejection. The people hated him without cause. And Yeshua predicts the fact that God's judgment is going to fall on the nation. Let me just read to you a couple of statements. The days will come upon you when the enemies will build an embankment against you. In other words, they'll lay a siege and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone upon another because you do not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Later on in chapter 21, the disciples, Yeshua and his disciples are walking in and they're ooing and eyeing over the temple. And Yeshua says, look, the time will come when not one stone will be left upon the other. Yeshua's prediction was fulfilled. The temple was totally burned. Josephus, a Jewish historian, described that blood ran so high up to the horse's stirrups. And it's estimated that one million Jewish people died during that period. And the rest were exiled. That's reality, folks. God's judgment came upon Israel. However, what does Scripture say and what does Scripture not say? Again, remember, God's judgment is specific. God's judgment came upon that generation because they rejected Yeshua. They paid dearly. And by the way, there was about a million Jews who did accept Yeshua in the first century. So it wasn't the entire nation. But God's judgment fell upon that nation, up, upon that generation. And you cannot draw a straight line from that to what happened in 1939 to 1945. God's judgment is specific on a specific sin. Yeshua's message was rejected by the people of that generation. And unfortunately, Yeshua's disciples in the following centuries had a totally different response to this tragedy than Yeshua himself did. And you see, Yeshua's response is like the response of all the other prophets when they predicted God's judgment. They reflected the heart of God who was heartbroken that judgment would have to come. Here in Luke chapter 19, we see one of only two places in the entire record of the Gospels that Yeshua, Yeshua wept. One, of course, is that of Lazarus. And then this one here. What's intriguing, what I found intriguing, was the fact that in, in John chapter 11, where John records Yeshua weeping over Lazarus, 
it was a very private, very quiet kind of a weeping. Greek word there should suggest just shedding tears. Very personal, personal sorrow, personal pain. Here in Luke 11, uh, Luke 19, a totally different word. It has to do with audible weeping and wailing. In other words, making a loud noise. The kind of noise you would make in, in a first century funeral. Crying out so that his disciples and everybody else around would hear. Here Yeshua in chapter 19 of Luke is on the top of Mount of Olives looking out over Jerusalem to the west and he is walking with a bunch of people and yes, he is predicting God's judgment upon the nation, upon that generation. But he is heartbroken, folks. He is heartbroken because he is not a detached observer somewhere. He is very much connected with the people. He's both a prophet and a priest, someone who intercedes, who is identified with his people. And part of what has happened over the centuries is that instead of people looking at Israel and sharing Yeshua's grief, there's been condemnation and hatred. You know, Yeshua calls us to be bearers of his word to a rebellious world. I know you may not view yourself as a prophet because people have misused that term. You know, I'm prophet so-and-so. Oh, yeah, right. Anything else you care to tell me? But folks, prophecy in a very basic sense just means being a communicator of the word of God. And if you have the word of God and you read it, 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 you internalize it, it becomes a part of you. It's my expectation and God's expectation that you will communicate it to those around you. And part of reality for us is that we tend to communicate the word of God as if we are taking gospel grenades and throwing it from behind a wall. You know, I, I don't want to get myself dirty with you, uh, you know, and get mucked up here. Um, I'm, I'm going to protect myself and communicate something. And by the way, our website is a wonderful medium. We bless God for it. But part of the picture is being part of the individual's part of the community and that's what God has been speaking to us over the last couple of years that he wants us as a congregation to be more engaged and have our face in the place so to speak and that's why we're participating tomorrow in the March of Remembrance by the way we just want to encourage you as you come that you don't come wearing t-shirts that say turn or burn I spoke in the church recently and uh, a gal came up afterwards and talked to me. She said, you know, I have a Jewish friend, a neighbor 
that I've just been seeking to open my heart to her. And then there's another Christian on the same block who said, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to go to hell. Not exactly the same kind of tone that Yeshua conveys here in Luke chapter 19. There, there's no heartbrokenness. Um, God is not willing that any should perish. Amen. That's his heart, folks. It's not just the, a theological truth. It's his heart. And God wants us to convey his word heart to heart, from his heart to our heart, to the hearts of people around us. And as you come tomorrow, please come with that, simply with that kind of an attitude of compassion. Yes, God is a God of judgment and justice. However, Scripture tells us in James that His mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, if there is any kind of decision to be made between judgment and mercy, mercy triumphs. God waits and waits and waits and waits patiently and sends messages of one kind or another. And even when judgment has to come, he's heartbroken. As you come, simply pray that God will bring about comfort. The prophet Isaiah says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Comfort. Explain the fact that, yes, the Shoah, the Holocaust has happened, but redemption is coming. And by the way, I just want to encourage you, if you have the attitude that says, get over it, to those who are struggling with the pain of the Holocaust, let me encourage you to get over it. Because those of us who have a connection with the Holocaust cannot get over it. It's not just another event in history like, like the Civil War that after a while, you know, the people die and everybody forgets about it. You read about it in world history. For us, it's not just history. It's our reality. We see it in the, in the surge and the increase of anti-Semitism worldwide. We cannot forget about it. It's part of reality for us. It's part of reality for the folks you're going to see tomorrow. Most of all, remember that when God presents himself, what he wants people to see, first of all, is his mercy. Remember when he took Moses and hid him behind the rock and zipped in front of him and said, Moses, this is who I am. And he gave him all these names. And his names had to do, first of all, with mercy and compassion. And because that's the way he is, that's the way he wants us to be. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindly, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
Yeshua said, you show mercy, mercy will be shown to you. It's not a karma, dharma type of a situation where you do X, you get Y. You reflect the heart of God. You show yourself to be worthy of His mercy. You show compassion and you remember that God wept at Jerusalem. God wept at Auschwitz and Buchenwald But he's not done. He's not done. Restoration is coming. Prophet Ezekiel states, I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. That's our expectation, our hope, and what we work towards. Let's pray. And please stand. We praise you, Lord God, that you are compassionate and merciful, full of chesed, full of grace and truth, forbearing, forgiving. Lord, as your word states, if it wasn't for your mercy, we would be consumed. We thank you, Lord God, that you know us, you know our sin, and you love us, and you provide atonement, provide redemption. Thank you, Lord God, for your good plans and purposes for us, your good plans and purposes for your people, Israel. Lord God, we pray that you would cause us to be messengers of your truth and your peace and your compassion. Give us, Lord God, soft hearts towards those around us who don't know you. Put your word in our mouth. Anoint us by your spirit, Lord God, to proclaim your word tenderly to their hearts. We ask this in the name of Yeshua. Amen.